0: Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast. My name's Ollie Henderson, and joining me this week is Erica Young. She's the head of community and network at Anthemis Group. They're a venture capital firm that focuses on investing in companies that will help drive change in the financial system. Erica is a lifelong student of networks, and she's the founder of the Reliance Project, where she helps people and organizations understand how networks shape our well-being relationships and community. She uses techniques developed in the fields of computer science, physics and sociology to map existing people and organisation networks and generate insights. It's so very relevant to the ongoing theme I've got within the newsletter and the podcast and of course that I'll be writing about in my book Work Life Flywheel around the importance of relationships and building community. We had a fascinating and wide ranging conversation covering the distinction between networks and communities, how our shift to virtual working has accelerated the development of online communities, and whether they augment or can ultimately replace traditional organizations. We also dug into the importance of cultivating your network, including why it's an advantage to compartmentalize, explain what that means during the podcast, and nurture various relationships from close all the way through to weak ties. Finally, we explore how to overcome a fear of networking, how to approach network building when going it alone, and how technology is removing friction from the process. Now, Erica also curates an excellent newsletter and podcast, which I'll link to in the show notes, so make sure you check that out. And as ever, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, and check out my newsletter, Future Work Life, in which I'll be writing a little about the themes we discussed today in the newsletter this week. So for now, let's get into my conversation with Erica Young. I started by asking what led to her interest in networks in the first place.
1: Well, you know, I think I intuitively appreciated them my whole life. Like, I think if I look back and I kind of connect the dots looking backwards, it's clear that that was always a priority for me. But I think what really drove it home as like, it's an academic discipline, it's a science, it can be studied, it can be improved on, was when I first moved to London, I actually started tracking how I built my network in London. So who did yeah. I meet? In what context did I meet them? What strength of a relationship did we achieve over time? And then how did that you know, start to become my network in London? Right? And I think that's really when it, it, it really drove this point home of how critical networks are um, and how they drive outcomes for people.
0: Tell me how you measured that. I'm really interested to hear.
1: Um, So I, so if I met somebody and I didn't like, if I was at, you know, the kind of classic networking cocktail party, let's say I talked to 20 people, if I didn't exchange emails or there was no way that I was going to like follow up with them and, and potentially meet them again, I didn't track those, those people. So that was a little bit of a limitation, but for everybody that I, that I met, where I was like, okay, I, I would probably attempt to meet this person again. I would add them to a spreadsheet, and I would say, okay, well, what was the event? Was it a private event? So a group of people organized by, um, you know, a friend, like a birthday party or a dinner gathering or something like that. Was it a public event? Um, was it a direct introduction? Was you know, so what was the context of the meeting? And then um, over time, I would met, I would kind of measure, okay would I describe this person kind of roughly based on Dunbar's numbers or, you know, Dunbar's theory around um, how many people you can maintain uh, in your head? um, I would Mm. say, okay, well, is this person really part of my close circle? Are they part of my sympathy group? Are they just, just a friend? And it's like, are are they part of my wider friend group or would I still describe them as an acquaintance? And then I actually tracked that every six months.
0: Mm. And, Depending on whether they sat inside or outside of that magic number, that Dunbar's number, did you then behave differently? Did you take different steps in maintaining relationships with those people?
1: No, it wasn't so much to – it was more to see actually what are the myths that we tell ourselves about building a community – and I was much more focused on, on the t- kind of top of funnel, so to speak, than I was about the maintenance down funnel. But I did notice that my, my pattern sort of was the cyclical pattern where I would meet a bunch of people and then I would have to do maintenance on those new relationships. And so therefore I couldn't meet as many new people. And so I went through this kind of like three month cycle where it'd be meeting yeah. lots of people, then building those relationships, then meeting more people, then building those relationships. Um, and uh, so there was a little bit of that trade off. Um, but uh, but I wasn't as focused as the how do I get them to be a reliant, which is my word for like the people I, you know, I really confide in and are part of my inner circle.
0: Yeah, I think when people think about networking in a professional context, they, they imagine what you described a moment ago, which is that awkward cocktail party, or even worse, a, an industry event where you go around handing uh, handing out your card and trying to introduce yeah. you, yourself to people. But, but if we think about networking as a discipline in a way you just outlined it, I hadn't really thought about this fact that inevitably, if you have a period of intense networking, if you like, where you meet 20 new people, there's always a bit of a period afterwards where you do have to solidify those relationships. And that inherently means you've got less time to build relationships with more new people? Is there an optimal amount of networking we should be constantly doing?
1: There's kind of the limiting beliefs portion of it, right? Um, in terms of, so the way I like to think about it is people tend to think about networking on a spectrum. And I don't even like to use the word networking. Like networks is a noun, like networking as a verb I don't like, um, okay. but but I appreciate that that's kind of the the industry standard. And so everybody says it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think about like most people think about it that if you don't intentionally do it, then it happens organically and that's good. Or you could be at the opposite end of the spectrum where you're intentionally doing it and that's calculating and that's bad. But that is a false dichotomy. So I would describe it more as four quadrants where you could be organic, so you're not intentional and you just get lucky. Or you could be opportunistic where you're, where you're not – really, it's not intentional, but you'll take advantage of an opportunity, which is slight negative connotation. Um, You could be calculating, as we've just described, or you could be cultivating, which is like, I am in it for both me and the person I'm interacting with. And so therefore, I'm looking out for both of us, and I'm being intentional, right? And so I think if we hang out in that cultivating space, it feels less icky to do the Mm. activity. So that's kind of like a foundational component of it. Um, Yeah. When you kind of step past that, I think that we, there's also people who, who feel that like, they really like this tight-knit network or tight-knit community group, however you want to describe it, of people that they interact with. And those kind of one-off relationships or more casual or more um, uh, acquaintances, those sorts of people, those don't feel real to them for some reason. Um, But those are the types of relationships that give you access to new opportunities, exposure to new ideas, right? Because they don't have the exact same information that that small group of people that you spend most of your time with have. And so they're sort of critical to your success. Um, And so I think getting over that hurdle of like both of these things have value, I think is quite powerful. And one researcher that does a great job of this is a guy by the name of Mario Small, and he's at Harvard. And he basically says, when I ask you who are the most important people that you would confide in if something was going wrong or you had a, a difficult decision to make, you would describe your closest ties: your mom, your partner, your you know your sibling, your your best friend, etc. Your boss. But when he asks people who did you actually confide in? They say at least more than 50% of the time, they say the barista, the bartender, the person in the elevator, the guy next to me at the, you know, sitting at the conference, whatever. And so I think we, we just don't, we have this sort of revisionist history around who we confide in that biases our perspective when we think about relationships.
0: And there's this idea of weak ties um, within relationships. Is that what you're referring to there? Or is that something else?
1: Yeah, well, I think there are two common ways that people think about weak ties. So the classic Mark Granovetter example um, for finding a new job was very much that. Like you have this tight-knit group, uh, your friend group, and all of those people have access to the same information, and therefore they're unable to help you access a new opportunity. Um, and so that presumes not only that the link between you and that person is strong, but that person is also linked to your friend group, right? And that presumption is those are intertwined in, because it's more likely. If the chances that your best friend knows your wife or husband is, is high, right? Because you probably spend a lot of time with them. But there are situations where we do have a strong link that isn't connected to our, like our core group of people. And so I think that those people can also be useful, even though they wouldn't be described as a weak tie in the classic sense.
0: Mm, okay. I'm interested now, there's, there's the idea of community, certainly within a business context, has become quite popularized as this yeah. sort of evolution of the way we build relationships. Um, now, I'm sure there's a lot of nuance to this, but I'm interested how you see the distinction between building your network and building a community.
1: So you are inevitably part of a network. Right. Without any intention, you are part of a network. The people that you know, know people who know people who know people. Right. Um, And, you know, Facebook has uh, one of their famous studies. I think this was a few years ago, was that the six degrees separation is no longer the case. It's actually four people on Facebook. It's like three point five or three point something. Right. So we are part of a network. Community is much more about intention. So is this my neighborhood? Is this my religious community? Is this my, um, you know, my buddies who are all interested in a particular obscure, you know, uh, comic con character or whatever. So I think it's, it's, those are the differences in my mind. Um, and both are very, very important and it's actually healthy to have a balance of the two. So when you are so tightly knit in a, in one community, that's how echo chambers form, right? So, mm. getting access to the wider network beyond that community creates that balance, so you don't get stuck in those types of scenarios.
0: There's various dynamics affecting the way that we work, and, and also affecting the way that I think we consider organisations and, and companies. And I think particularly since we've many of us have been, you know, forced to work remotely, I think that relationship perhaps between employees and their employers has shifted a little and outside of that there's also this development of kind of a movement of um communities online and into the ultimate manifestation of it is this idea of decentralized autonomous organizations you know this sort of cream this crypto web3 world if i for example were to go it alone and go solo one of the challenges i face is that i lose that support structure around me as a business do you see online communities in these various forms being able to replicate or replace in some way the uh, traditional idea of a business?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, I guess the difference is if you work for an organization or if you I – w- I wouldn't even limit it to organizations. If you rely on existing institutions and structures to – provide the the scaffolding for your relationships so the football club that you're a part of the university that you go to the company that you work for whatever and they're kind of maintaining the relationships for you then you don't have to do as much work right in managing Mm. those relationships but as soon as you're on your own you leave university and you're trying to make friends for the first time in a new city you left your job and you're trying to go freelance those that scaffolding is gone And you have to build it yourself, right? And then you realize how much effort it is to build it yourself. Mm. Um, And so I think that's the the difference is that a lot of people, the feeling that they're experiencing in the context of going freelance is just like leaving university and setting out on your own and realizing it's harder to make friends. It's basically the same fundamental structural difference. Uh, And I think that these online communities be it Slack communities, Discord, you know, being part of a DAO, et cetera, are all ways to create that structure for individuals that are, um, you know, that are kind of floating in the ether right now. Um, And I think that can be really, really powerful.
0: Yeah. What about in the case of specifically just employees working remotely? Do you think that the relationships just between colleagues has change significantly yeah. is that something that's come out of the box which we can't squeeze back in
1: well I, you know the data is interesting and quite mixed right so you've got people's networks shrunk during the pandemic that seems to be a, um, a clear in the data um, individuals seem to be less trusting of their colleagues a couple years out, right? Because they haven't spent that that in-person time with each other or that I would say not necessarily in, in person, but authentic time relating to each other as humans, right? So that's clear. But you also have a lot of data to support that younger generations have friends that they've never met in person, that they count as real friends, right? So I think that the technology and these these kind of large macro trends create challenges, but they also create opportunities, you know? Um, So I think the, the removal of, of geographic and time zone boundaries is is kind of great. Um, I think that you, there is um, a lot of really meaningful, maybe what I'd say is we can now transition finally from social media, which is a lot, a lot about being about consumption and being a, um, a consumer of content to actually social apps where the goal of the app is to help you connect, right? There's a big difference Mm. between sifting through your Facebook feed and talking to people on WhatsApp. They're both technologies. They're both kind of bundled into the social media, but they really operate very differently. And so I think that focus more on, on the many to many connections um, is as more technology um, I guess develops that can facilitate that. I think there's some really interesting things that can happen.
0: Go back to your point earlier on, actually, about Dunbar's number. I mean, maybe actually you could explain specifically what that means because not everybody might be familiar with it. But as a, as a follow-on question, given the fact that there's a limitation to how many close relationships we can have, whether we should be really focused around the, the number of communities we are a part of. Mm.
1: Well, I think, I, yeah, I, let's separate those out into two buckets. But if we yeah. if we start first looking at Dunbar's number and – so a lot of people, when they think of Dunbar's number, they think of the 150, which is basically the cognitive max of people that you can maintain a relationship with at any given time. Um, that's and that doesn't. That's not people that you should have on LinkedIn or people that you should have on Facebook or whatever. It's just like how many people are you likely to invite to a wedding, for example, which often. Hovers around 150 or send holiday cards to, or like those kind of classic examples. But the number actually starts with the five people that are kind of like your close confidants, your friends and family, your partner, your right, where they're the ones that you would sleep on their couch if something went wrong, that you would borrow money from, that you hand over your children to if you needed to, right? So that kind of group mm-hmm. of people. And then he expands that to what. And these five people are part of a larger, what he calls a sympathy group, which is roughly 15 people. So imagine like a, a nice little dinner party of your closest friends and family, right, would be this this group. Um, and there's a lot of variability culturally. You know, Indian weddings are massive. You know, a lot of Western med- weddings now, people are eloping. So it's, of course, it's all relative. But um, And then that next group after that is, is really around 45 to 50. And those are the people you might invite to your birthday party. Right, so it's it's kind mm-hmm. of thinking: what are these circles, concentric circles of individuals um, that hold different levels of significance and closeness to you in your life? So that that's really how yeah. Dunbar's number works. Um, yeah, and I found what was very interesting in my um, in my work reflecting. I mean, of course, it's n equals one, but my own relationships. Um, but mm-hmm. I found that I basically hovered around those five those five individuals. In each city that I've lived, so when I lived in um, Hong Kong, there was really five people who made up that core. Now, now that I live in London, there are some, somehow still five people that sort of make up that.
0: Core. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. so then with on that other point then I mean I guess it is it's a different question and perhaps it's as much a matter of time as it is with your capacity to be able to manage the number of relationships but I'm just interested in the idea if we in some way replace our physical communities with our mind communities there is a limit to which we need to stick in order to get value from those I guess we like anything you could spread yourself too thinly
1: yep so I think what what's really interesting, and there's another woman's research that I really like in this context, and she doesn't think about it in terms of community. She thinks about it in terms of, of groups of people, but I think it's quite fractal, right? Like that it scales yeah. up and down. Um, she found that in friend networks, so she basically looked at friend networks um, of college students and what that meant for their academic and social success. And she found that there were three main group like types of friend networks. So you had like that d- densely tight interconnected group that I described where everybody knows everybody and they all always mm-hmm. hang out together. And then there was a separate group that she described as the compartmentalizers where you had you know, your academic friends, your sports friends, your club friends, whatever. You had two to three different groups that you would navigate between. And then she had a last group that she called the samplers, which is basically they had lots of one-to-one relationships, but most of those people didn't know each other. And wow. so what you're describing reminds me of the compartmentalizer in the sense that when you have these different communities that you can trade off time and attention towards, if one of them isn't as fruitful or, or feeling as valuable, you have another outlet right, that you can Mm. go to, you have somewhere else you can go. If you're stuck in the center of one dense, tightly connected network, then it's much harder to do that. You have no outlet. And so what she found in her research was the people who had those only one dense, tightly connected network, community, group of people, that they either had really successful outcomes or they would have the worst outcomes and actually drop out of college Um, because it's really intense either way. Right. Yeah. Um and so I guess I would argue that having a handful of different communities that you can dip in and out of is better than and, and more resilient and more yeah. um uh I guess effective over the long term than being part of just one network or one community.
0: Yeah. And now I'm I'm going back to probably the trope of professional networking here, so forgive me, but Yeah, I think that's okay. People, <laughs> people people some you know people will say oh, i hate networking it's a bit like public speaking they sort of it's it's something they just oh there's just something inside them that they absolutely hate about it. and they just it's just i'm I just i'm just not very good at it mm. is that true i mean are we you know the fact we're an introvert introverted or extroverted determine whether we're good at that is it something we can you talk about cultivating now which i think is a really lovely way of thinking about it can we get better can we learn the skills to cultivate better over time and if so what sort of approaches could we take to do so
1: i think and forgive uh, you know all the extroverts forgive forgive you guys but uh, i'm also an extrovert i I think that that sort of networking classic terrifying scenario of the cocktail party was designed by extroverts for extroverts and Mm -hmm. it's so narrow as a definition of networking and it's it's really terrible for a lot of people um, that, like, we just should wipe that from our memory as, like, that should not be the only way we network, right? And I think when you think about it as it might sound scary to ask for a direct introduction to somebody, um, but, of course, there's, there's matching platforms like Lunch Club and, and others that are, that are community-based where someone else we'll do the matching for you and all you need to do is show up for the conversation. Um, Mm -hmm. There are other kind of smaller, more intimate settings that you can create uh, in order to connect meaningfully with others. And so I think when people say they hate networking, I think they hate that specific scenario, which is terrible for most people. So that's totally fair. Um, But I think Mm -hmm. if you broaden your perspective of what it might mean, you know, like to, to connect meaningfully with people and not create this like very stark definition or, or dividing line between personal and professional and kind of realize it's all people that you can connect with meaningfully, then I think it's a lot easier. So I guess, yeah. but, there, but there are um, a bunch of limiting beliefs that people I think come to the table with that impact their ability to engage meaningfully. And that, that those are the ones I would work on. Right. Like, am I deserving, like of people liking me? Right. Am I worthy of connection? Am I, um, you know, is it not only what I know, but who I know, like those sorts of things are still really important, but it doesn't mean you need to be successful walking through a cocktail party.
0: Yeah. Where does the idea of this sort of, the reciprocal nature of of, of relationships come in um, because as, as you mentioned it there are, you know to, I suppose how you your mindset as you approach this should be should it be what am I trying to get out of it should it be well I know that this is valuable and so let's just throw myself into it or should you be thinking well actually I've got a lot I can offer other people if I offer that to them perhaps I'll get something in return what's or is there, a, is there an occasion for each of those
1: um, I think so Adam Grant does a good job of of describing this. He kind of give and take is a, you know, very popular book that um that he's written on this topic. I think being a natural giver where you lead first with what you can offer, uh, I think is really powerful. Um and I think that if you do that without any expectation of what you might get in return, that's that's wonderful in most scenarios. I think in some scenarios, particularly business scenarios, it's very helpful to say something more along the lines of, because people are kind of, well, what is this person getting out of the situation? So I think Mm. in some situations, it's worthwhile to be like, I've thought a lot about this, or I've looked at your website, or I'm familiar with your company, or I looked at your profile and whatever. And I think, we might both be able to gain from doing X, Y, Z together. Right. So, but make it clear. I, I'm, it's clear to me that I'm going to get something out of it, but I, I, but I, you know, I'm focused on the fact that we could mutually benefit. And I think that, you know, it's kind of cheesy, this whole like win-win scenario, but it's true, right? Like it's, I'm looking Mm. out for both of us and here's what I have in mind.
0: Yes. So, so I've obviously asked you a few questions, probably some related to kind of classic understanding of networking, some related to the sort of future, Benefits of community building. You spend all of your time, or a lot of your work time, thinking about this, certainly, and you write a, an excellent blog and 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 have a podcast. What what do I not know about the future of networking and its relationship, perhaps, with technology?
1: Yeah, I think the thing I am really excited about, and it's probably twofold. Like one, you can see that organizations are really starting to prioritize this type of thinking and are actually building functions within their organizations to focus on this. So the kind of the rise of the community department um, kind of concept. So that's really exciting to me because I think it's showing that there's, there's a belief that there's real business value in cultivating community um, either. And, and not really thinking about your, um, uh, your customers as customers, but thinking them of them as members. Right. So that shift in thinking, Mm -hmm. I think, is quite powerful and it's awesome to see that. And I think there is in line with that a a whole wave of new technologies that are supporting that function within the business. So um, I guess what you imagine or what you saw in terms of digital marketing you know, 10, 15 years ago is starting to take root in, in the community space, um, which means dashboards to understand the metrics around how the health of your community and how people are connecting to each other. Um, you know, tools to facilitate ask-me-anythings and office hours and one-to-one matching and group matching, right? So like all the tour, tools to sort of facilitate that interaction at scale. Um, and that's really, mm. this is not, you know, not even looking at web three and DAOs and kind of what's coming on later down the line, but like really the here and now that can meaningfully benefit people in the next few years. Um, So that's really exciting to see.
0: And how do you think for, for people listening, perhaps take take two different uh, groups of people, perhaps those working as an employee within a, uh, an organization or those who operate as contractors or freelancers, what might their experience of these new technologies be? How, how would they be, become a part of the community and what kind of what sort of tools do you see which um, enable people of the in those camps to engage with the business in a different way?
1: Yeah. Well one of the tools that I'm a huge fan of and I am a customer of for full disclosure is one called Orbit. And we've been using that with our portfolio company team members at our company. So basically the way that works for You know, one of the founders of one of our businesses is they would receive an email from us that says, Hey, are you interested in having a conversation about inclusive leadership? Is the one that's going to pop up this week? Um, If so, click here. You click, you enter in very simple bits of information and say that you're when you're available and then you sign up and that would match you to somebody else who is also hit interested in having that conversation, who is schedules compatible with yours and who has similar background experience stage of their business, whatever the case may be. Mm. Um, and so that is automatically creating a connection that otherwise wouldn't exist, that we wouldn't have been able to identify. And that kind of weaves our ecosystem together or our community together more tightly. Um, which yeah. is awesome, right? And we've done that. I think we did f- over 500 matches in 2021, and um, and our MPS is like 90 average wow. over all of those, you know, all of those rounds of matching. And now we're actually doing a similar program. We're allowing for small peer learning groups. So basically, saying, mm. would you like to? Uh, meet with other heads of products, heads of marketing, head of people, whatever the case may be, and talk shop once a month for three months, sign up, and we'll match you with a group. Mm-hmm. Um, and our MPS on that is already 69, and we've only done three rounds of it. Um, so we did it in June and September, now in January. Um, but it's like, again, not something I could do if I had to manually make that work, right? Um, yeah. So being able to do that at scale is amazing.
0: Well, the really interesting bit of that is that people are opting in, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're identifying those activities or those subject areas in which they either want to develop or they've got a really keen interest and they're choosing to engage in it rather than it being kind of something that's forced upon them.
1: Yeah. And it, it's also interesting that it, it seems to appeal, at least for those two exercises, they seem to appeal to different people. So like 50% of the people who signed up for the group matching had never done one-to-one matching before. Um, yeah. And so it's clear that they're they're looking to fill a particular gap, and this is helping to do that. But uh, I mean, we have other pilots. You know, we have one with a company called Superlinked, where um, for a recently onboarded, you can imagine an individual. In our case, it's a company. We're saying, here are the three people in our in our community we, that we really think you should meet. Click here, and w- if you want to be introduced to this person. Um, And so it's just a simple email they get after they've joined our community that kind of brings them in and gets them acclimated, right? And these sorts of um, things are really easy to do in a virtual-first environment or a remote-first environment.
0: Yeah. So on that last point you made there about virtual meetups and of course it removes the friction of having to go somewhere and take some time out of your diary because it's so easy it matches you presumably puts a virtual meeting in your diary and you just log on I'm interested though it must change the nature of the relationships you're building when you do it digitally rather than in person how should we think about getting a mix of both because I'm, I mean I do miss me- meeting people in person I've built amazing relationships over the last couple of years I've, I've done more networking in the last two years than I ever did before and I think it's because I kind of prefer the medium through which we're talking now which is through a screen just because it's easy but I think about those people in my close knit group who I can trust and I go to with um, you know challenges or need advice in a, in a work context they're usually people I've spent Breakfast with, or you know, I've had a lunch with, I've had a drink with at some point, or maybe just worked in the same office environment. So it must affect things. There's the pros and cons of digital communication must play out within relationship building as well.
1: Yeah, I know, but I think the it's similar to what you've described in the sense that, and again, not to think of people as coming through a funnel, um, but that's the most common analogy. Is like when you're thinking about people you've never met before having a first conversation on, on a screen is it's low friction. You're not putting as much effort out. You're not traveling an hour across London to meet them for a 30 mm-hmm. minute or an hour long conversation with the expectation that they're nev- you're never going to meet them again. So I think it's, it's great mm-hmm. for those kind of first time interactions. And apparently uh, there's another article that said that a lot of people are using it in dating, right? So they're having video chats first but before they Mm. put the effort to meeting in person. So I think it's clear that that there are certain scenarios where it just lowers the barrier and makes you willing to try a conversation you might not uh, otherwise try. Another example is people are putting on um, LinkedIn office hours where they're saying, I'll have a 15 minute conversation with anybody who signs up during this, you know, this three hour window. And so you're, you're willing to let your guard down, which gets more diversity of people in Right. Which is amazing, because otherwise that probably wouldn't happen. And then you can retain the 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 in-person time for the people that are really, you know, that are really important and really close to you.
0: So I um, really appreciate your time this morning. It's so interesting to hear about your work. I'm going to put some links to your work in the show notes for the podcast. But is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Either how you think about the future of work broadly, whether there's any personal sort of insights that you'd want to share or just resources you'd point us in the direction of?
1: So I think in the context of future of work, I guess one of the things that I've really been encouraging people to do is to actually map their network. So to and for a freelancer, regardless of where you are in the in the development of your um, of your business or or in the context of future work, whatever your work situation is, kind of getting a sense of okay, well, where am I getting my inbound, my referrals, my new opportunities from? Who, where am I getting advice from? In terms of like who is the the group of people that I reach out to to get advice, get feedback, figure out what to charge figure out how to, you know, structure contracts, whatever the case may be. And then who are those people that I collaborate with? You know, who are the people that I'm going to share projects with that I'm going to subcontract to, that I'm going to, that are going to bring me in, right? To be the key person Mm -hmm. on their project. I think understanding those groups of people and their relationships with each other, not just with you, can be so valuable in terms of unlocking understanding of, of how to nudge your network in the direction you want to go. And so that's, like, the single biggest thing I would encourage people to do.
0: Just one follow-up practical question to that. When you say map it, how do you map it? Do you do it on a, you know, a bit of paper, on a big bit, on a whiteboard, on a spreadsheet? How do you do that?
1: Yeah, so I I have a blog post that talks about, like, that simplifies the process that hopefully we can share um, with whoever's listening. Um, I find that doing it in, if you like keynote or powerpoint or google slides or lucid chart or any of those sort of diagramming or presentation tools that's probably easiest because then you can sort of move the people around and draw the lines and remove the lines um that's i find to be the fastest but you could absolutely do it on a piece of paper no problem
0: yeah All right. erica thanks so much for your time today
1: yeah you're very welcome
0: And that was my conversation with Erica Young. If you'd like to learn more about the themes we discussed, make sure you check out her podcast and blog and also subscribe to the Future Work Life newsletter. Links to all of those in the show notes. Now, as I said at the top, I'll be writing about the importance of building networks and communities when making career transition in the newsletter in the coming weeks and in the book. Make sure I plug that as often as possible. And next week, I've got a very special guest returning to the show So make sure you tune in. Until then, have a great week.